0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is
0: Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about bonsai. Now, Rob, I hope you don't mind if I share a bit of trivia about you with the listeners. I, I don't know if you ever made clear on this show before, but you are a very caring plant keeper. Uh, you, you've for a long time at work had a, a wonderful little flower on your desk. And uh, often like if you're out of town, you would ask me to drop an ice cube on it, which I think I always remembered to do whenever you asked me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I appreciate the, the, the care and tenderness you show for the plant kingdom.
1: Well, um, I appreciate that, Joe. I guess you, you could also say I just I managed not to kill an orchid uh, that <laughs> that I was charged with. Um, uh, it was my my father in law's uh, uh, orchid, and uh, yeah, so it lived on my desk at work there, and it would have an ice cube every now and then to keep it hydrated. And I would yeah ask you or, or sometimes uh, 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 Scott who sat next to me to to do it. Um, And uh, yeah, I managed not to kill it. And there is something kind of satisfying about having this kind of like long term uh, relationship with a plant, this uh, this nurturing, you know, even if it's very slight nurturing and not like, a, you know, not a real high maintenance plant. Mm -hmm. um, You know, it seems like a pretty sturdy species that I had growing there. Uh, And now it's growing in my bathroom. Uh, oh since nice. i'm not in the office anymore but yeah it's it is very very satisfying to to be involved in a in a nurturing relationship with a plant like that just as it is so frustrating and and potentially depressing to have the opposite relationship relationship with a plant you know i think we've all had that as well we're like oh my gosh i cannot keep this thing alive this plant just wants to die or i am just horrible at it
0: now One thing you may not have considered, and I apologize if this is an overly intimate thought, but whenever you have a plant growing in a bathroom, and we have plants growing in our bathrooms, you have Mm -hmm. to assume that they are making their cells as they continue to photosynthesize from the lights over the sink, they are making their cells out of some percentage of carbon that comes out of your like toilet emissions and so forth.
1: Hmm. (laughs) Probably, right? I guess so. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I guess that's good, right? You're you're exposing yeah. them to to more of the natural world even though they're an indoor plant. Yeah, I never thought about that before.
0: Um Well, I mean, so if it's mainly carbon dioxide, I assume it's probably more what you're breathing out, but I I don't know, farts probably have some CO2
1: content, right? I guess, but then again, if it's if it's farts the plants want, then they really want a fully packed uh, office environment again, right? I mean, <laughs> right. I mean there's I I can't possibly offer it the um the you know the, the kind of volume it was probably accustomed to.
0: Well, so I'm excited to talk about bonsai today. Uh I have never myself taken care of a bonsai tree. I have uh I have tried to I guess I don't know if this was this would count. I have tried to take care of a sort of potted tree of sorts. I don't know if it would actually count as bonsai, but I failed. I just I mm-hmm. killed it, and that's why I'm partially envious of uh, of the dedicated and regular care that you always showed to your orchid.
1: Well, I would say that yeah, whatever, however you classify that care, bonsai is certainly on it on an entirely different level. It is up on the the top of the mountain. We're talking about the the pinnacle of um, of caring for a plant. And uh, yeah, this is this was one. This is an episode I've wanted to do for a while. I think my experience with bonsai—I've never owned a bonsai or cared for a bonsai—but my experience with them, with them is probably similar to a lot of people's out there. My first exposure was almost certainly watching The Karate Kid uh, as a child <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and seeing that oh, well, Mr. Miyagi has has bonsai plants. Those are neat. Uh, and then maybe I don't know. Maybe they popped up on a Reading Rainbow or something at some point. Um, I, I don't recall. But then much, much later, uh, I, you know, I was, I was traveling and I was visiting, I believe, uh, one place in San Francisco and another place in San Diego where I got to see a multitude of bonsai plants uh, with, you know, identification information as well as age. And it was just really amazing to behold these things, these these ancient trees that that you feel should be gigantic, but they are in miniature and they are alive and they are just meticulously cared for and crafted. Uh, and, yeah, there's this there's this kind of magical aura to them and this and this age, this kind of condensed age, you know. Um, so they're, they're really special to just behold. And then when you read a little bit about caring for them, yeah, it, it also... Uh, that just adds to your level of appreciation when you read about the culture involved in it. And uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to do an episode on this for a while. And then I'd kind of forgotten about it. I think we pitched it as part of a, a deal with a um, a, um, a Japanese automobile company that was going to advertise for this. <laughs> oh, and and then I, that didn't happen. And I forgot about it. But then I ended up watching Cobra Kai on Netflix, which also <laughs> has the bonsai <laughs> trees in it. And um, and I was reminded, uh, oh, yeah, we, we should do a bonsai episode. Yeah, got bonsai bouncing around in the brain. Okay, so mm-hmm. maybe you you can answer a
0: question that I'm sure a lot of people are wondering. What is it – what makes the strict definition of a bonsai tree? What makes a bonsai tree different than any potted plant?
1: Well, um, based on my understanding of it, uh, I would say that the, the, the big thing to do is you sort of have to back up and think about it not just as – Caring for a tree and growing for a tree and, and nurturing a tree, but it's also just it's also steeped in just like the basics of art and design, you know. Because mm. art and design, you know, very often sit around the manipulation of the natural world or natural resources into some form that is aesthetically pleasing, and perhaps even philosophical or theologically engaging as well you know we take stone and we craft into the likeness of a a human or some sort of humanoid figure of myth or legend trees are cut down and hewn and then the raw material is carved into all manner of forms and functions but as for the control of living plants. That brings us, of course, to agriculture and cultivation, um, and and human works are pretty grand in this realm as well. I mean, you look at what we 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 have done for generations and generations with agriculture and cultivation. But the the bond, Japanese bonsai tree, it is the the pinnacle of plant cultivation, uh, and and I think that Brad Dunning described this exceptionally well for the New York Times back in two thousand two. Uh, they wrote, "Quote." But it's more than just an issue of control, simple for, simply for the sake of control. As nature spins wildly downward, there is an example of man controlling... Conquering, nurturing, and respecting nature on an extremely uh, reverential level. By constantly thwarting the growth of new saplings, the bonsai gardener, through pinching, cutting, and splitting new growth, forces the tree's branches to strain in any direction to succeed. With additional help from restraining wires, the tree is manipulated into prematurely aged shape over time, sometimes a lot of time. Prize specimens can be several hundred years old.
0: So bonsai is not just a potted plant, but it's a tree that's grown in a confined environment with this spirit of artistic shaping
1: yes yeah and uh and, and along at, you know certain traditional like you get into like what kind of pot is used, et cetera, mm-hmm. and then' I've also known what species is used uh you know as as is often the case with with this, particularly uh you know Japanese uh artistry, there are a lot of very particular um details in the cultivation. And it it comes down to things like what are the traditional shears that one should use? What are the best shears? Uh, That sort of thing. Um, Another thing that's interesting about bonsai trees to
0: me, and I think this comes through through all this pruning and shaping and everything, is that um, a bonsai tree does not just look like a sapling or like a young tree. There Mm -hmm. is a particular style of miniaturization that comes about through the long sustained care of this this small plant which is that it is a tiny version of a tree that looks like a shrunken adult version of the same tree rather than just a sapling or, or young growth does that make sense
1: yeah and exactly they're like this ancient dwarf yeah and and uh, and it, and it a lot of the 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 reasons that this is attractive to us i feel like they almost deny uh, or they, they defy rather um you know easy uh explanation you know there's something obviously about the world at large made small that we're always fascinated in. you know we love miniatures be it uh, you know miniature miniature soldiers miniature tanks miniature cities maps etc uh and in fact one of the 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 origin stories for the bonsai trees that we'll touch on has to do with that like the idea of like make make the, the world at large small enough for me to behold it uh, but then also there is something too about like the ancient uh made small like it it reminds me of so many myths of like tiny little old men, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that have some sort of magical powers. You know, little folk, grandfather mushroom. Like the, yeah. yeah, there's something of the of the fairy world, you know, in that in that you know non culturally distinct uh, manner uh, to the bonsai tree. Yeah. Now, um, there, there are of course true bonsais created in accordance to, with the Japanese tradition. Uh, And there are various tiers that follow that fall below this standard, uh, with one of the most notorious being the sort of bonsai that sometimes is sold at malls, grocery stores, and street fairs. And these, according to Stephen Orr in New York Times uh, Garden Q and A in 2009, are a curse upon the name of bonsai. (laughs) Uh, These are typically young rooted juniper tree cuttings in a decorative pot. Uh, so not true bonsais. We'll get into what true bonsai really consists of in a bit. But people will buy these. They think they have a bonsai. It looks neat. They bring it home. And then they're devastated when it dies in a few months. So not a not an ancient dwarf tree or something that will become an ancient dwarf tree, but just a short-lived trick. Mm-hmm. And this made me think of Cobra Kai, actually, because in the TV oh. show, um, Ralph Macchio's character, uh, you know, from the first film, is now a, a car dealer. And he has a car dealership. And part of his whole gimmick in the show is when you buy a car, you also get this little bonsai plant that he prepares. And I guess it's supposed to, you know, he's hes very meticulous uh, c- character and he's all into the tradition. So I guess it's supposed to be the case that these are legitimate bonsai trees that he's handing out to customers. Wow. But it makes me wonder. How many cars what it's does not? he sell? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, yeah, he sells nice cars, but, but I wonder, uh, It does I, the cynical side of me, um, leaning into sort of, the, sort of the cynical notes to that character in that show, is like, I wonder if these are just the cheap roadside bonsais that he's handing out, mm. you know? Yeah. That would be very car dealery. But you can always
0: blame user error, right? You can always just say like, oh, must not have taken care of it right. Yeah,
1: better bring it back into the shop. We'll yeah. f- apply <laughs> that undercoating. <laughs> the true coat, yeah. You're gonna want that true code on your bonsai. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's a fun show. Um, well, uh, yeah, let's well let's keep going talking about bonsais then. Uh, so, at the heart of the bonsai practice is just pure artistic manipulation of a tree's growth. Trees, as you've probably noticed, everyone uh, grow in accordance to their genes, but also in accordance. Uh, to their surroundings so this means the dictates of water soil and sun various other limiting factors in their immediate surroundings as well such as other trees human structures uh, power lines Uh, you know as i think we all can attest uh, to you can you can see some pretty wonky trees out in the world out in the forest uh, in urban environments you know where they they do the best they can with the with the constraints that are there Mm -hmm. Um, and indeed they can produce natural examples of what you can at least roughly classify as a bonsai tree. For instance, if you were to uh, to travel down to uh, a place called Tate's Hell (laughs) in Tate's Hell State Forest uh, near Tallahassee, Florida, and I I have to say I have driven through it. I can't say I've actually visited, but I did drive through it. Uh, there, There is a forest, apparently, of miniature cypress trees, hundreds of years old, covering acres, and none more than 15 feet tall, which granted that's Far bigger than what you might think of as a bonsai tree, a true bonsai tree. Um, but bear in mind that cypress trees of this variety and age can reach heights of 150 feet. Yes,
0: yeah, so old cypress trees can can be towering. Uh, and so there are special conditions at work that keep this ancient forest as short as it is. I was reading that most of these trees are between um, like 6 and 15 feet at maturity. I think a lot of them are around 10 feet or so. Uh, and the, it's very strange looking. I found one picture that's like an aerial shot of this dwarf cypress forest that is surrounded by many other trees. I think the story goes that at some point there was a company that was uh, harvesting a lot of the trees from the area. I think maybe for logging or maybe to clear land for something. But um, but when they reached the dwarf cypress forest, they realized that that they that this was something unusual and worth preserving. So they. They stopped a lot of their, uh, their shaping of the land at the edge of this thing, and it did end up getting preserved when the state bought it and turned it into a state forest. Uh, but a sidebar on Tate's Hell, because I had to know what was up with that name, and I looked into it, and I actually was rewarded with some very excellent Florida swamp lore. All right, let's have it. Well, so I was uh, reading about it in this book called Florida Lore by Karen Schnoor-Neal, published in 2017. And she points out, first of all, there is a song by the old Florida folk singer Will McLean about Tate's Hell, and and it tells the same story as the... Uh, legend that I'm about to explain. But it's also one of the, those old-style folk songs that starts with a section that is not singing, but is kind of rapping. I don't know exactly what you call it. Like, fast, rhythmic, rhyming, talking before the, the tune kicks in, uh, where he says, yeah. like, oh, listen, good people, to a story I'll tell
1: of a great swamp in Florida, a place called Tate's Hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sort of like the pre-folk song ramble. Sometimes I guess it rhymes, oftentimes it does not. But yeah, you hear it from... Uh, from a number of, of practitioners of the craft. I know Phil Oakes would do it a lot, you know, where he's kind of working up. He's oh, like, all right, yeah. I'm listening to this tune. I got a little, and sometimes there's even like a bit, it's almost like a little comedy bit. Mm-hmm. And I guess I guess that's what, funny. Um, yeah, yeah. and I guess that's what, uh, oh, what's their names kind of leaned into this a lot in their act, uh, the famous folk comedy duo. Oh, can't think of their names offhand. Um, I don't know, I don't know who you One saying. of them's bald, one of them has a beard, soft-spoken garfunkel and oats no it's not garfunkel Oats, though i think they probably have like more of a you know modern version of this and it's it's not uh the uh, flight of the concords
0: those are the two folk comedy duos
1: i know these are the one they were on tv all the time um oh man um smothers brothers the smothers brothers i don't know why i was i was trying oh, I was okay, so okay. hard on that yeah
0: well, Will McLean tells us that t- Tate's Hell is a place where the bullgators beller and the panthers squall. Now, this is a place that should be shunned by all. Uh, <laughs> and so, the legend goes like this. But th- th- this is the version that I was reading in the book by um, by Neil, not by not in Will McLean's song, though they're similar. Uh, the legend goes that in the year eighteen seventy five, there was a homesteader named C. B. Tate who had staked a claim for a ranch in the panhandle of Florida. And that's where Tate's Hell is. It's up in the panhandle. It's uh, – I think it's near Wakula Springs, isn't it?
1: Um, Perhaps. I mean, certainly I've been to Wakula or Wakula. I'm not sure exactly what the preferred pronunciation there is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I've been there. uh, But I guess – yeah, I don't remember how I even came through Tate's Hell. It was just Mm -hmm. we were on the way to somewhere else. Mm. And we had to pass through it.
0: Well, it's near a place that is now called Sumatra, Florida. It's an unincorporated community about 30 miles from the city of Carabelle. And the context for this is that there was the Homestead Act of 1862, which meant that settlers could get a grant of supposedly free land from the government if they would agree to stay there and develop it for five years. And C.B. Tate is one of these uh, homesteaders. So he's got a he's got a ranch or a farm that he's trying to run. And one morning he... Discovers that a panther has mauled several of his cows. So he sets off in the forest with his hunting dogs and the implements of death. As Will McLean says, an old long tom shotgun and a sharp Barlow knife, that panther would sure have the chase of his life. And so Tate's dogs, they get the scent on the panther and they take off after it. But Tate himself falls behind and he gets separated from his hunting dogs. Unfortunately, as we've discussed in the podcast last October, when there is no visible landmark to navigate by, it's surprisingly easy to get lost in the woods, and that appears to be what happens here. He's wandering in the swampy forest, and he gets lost, and at some point he gets bitten by a snake, and he loses his gun. And to read from Karen Schnoor-Neal here, quote, For seven days and nights, he roamed the ancient trees in ominous swampland, more often than not dazed with hunger and heat, forced to live on nothing but roots and muddy water. To make matters worse, the mosquitoes swarmed around him until every inch of his body was bitten. Ugh, that's worse than the snake bite to me. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the, the story says that over the course of, uh, the week that he was lost, his hair turned white. But then after seven days, just when he was convinced he was going to die, Tate ran into a couple, a couple of hunters from Carabel, and they asked him, who are you and where do you come from? And he says, my name is CB Tate and I come from hell. <laughs> it's pro- probably not exactly true, but it is a good story. But anyway, if the story were true, it's possible that many of the cypress trees that are still no more than 10 or 15 feet tall today in the cypress forest of Tate's Hell would have been there to watch C.B. Tate get snake bit, you know, amid all the bull gator bellers. Because, again, a lot of these these trees are are quite old. They're, you know, hundreds of years old, even though they're still so small. And I was reading a post about the Dwarf Cypress Forest on the blog of a local conservation organization called the Apalachicola Riverkeeper. Mm-hmm. And the author of this blog post writes that, uh, quote, These Dwarf Pond Cypress trees may have become stunted due to a hard layer of clay that prevents roots from growing deeper, similar to planting a tree in a bonsai pot. Huh. So that's one possibility. Uh, another, uh, they go on. Also, the soil is low in nutrients, as evidenced by the carnivorous plants in the area. You can also find dwarf cypress trees near the pitcher plant bogs north of Sumatra, so there may be some correlation. Now, remember, we've discussed uh, carnivorous plants on the show before. The reason that carnivorous plants eat insects, or at least most carnivorous plants, I would assume all, uh, the reason they eat insects is not the same as the main reason that we would eat plants or animals you know we need to eat things to get you know protein and energy Plants photosynthesize sunlight to get the energy they need to live. So carnivorous plants eat for specific nutrients that are lacking in barren and often swampy soil. What other plants would get from the soil around them, carnivorous plants get from insects. And in human terms, when plants eat an insect, it's not like devouring a loaf of bread. It's like they're taking their vitamins. So according to this source, at least, that same type of nutrient-poor soil could be one thing preventing the cypress trees from growing taller, or it could be a hard layer of sediment that blocks root growth, which in turn shapes the body of the tree as a whole, which is very much what happens when you plant a tree in a pot. Mm. And this also ties into something else interesting that I was reading that, that I guess I'll come back to in a few minutes. Uh, but yeah, so bonsai trees are, their, their growth is constrained by several factors, but one of the main ones being the pot that they're confined to helps shape the, not just where the roots go, but the, the
1: overall shape of the tree as a whole. That's interesting. Yeah. And that ties directly into what we're talking about with the, with the bonsai, um, now I I will say though as far as Tate's Hell goes I do remember how I, I wound up there. I was midway upon the journey of our life and I found myself within a, a forest dark uh, <laughs> for the, far, the straightforward pathway had been lost. Uh-huh.
0: Oh and what and you ran into three beasts one of which was a panther. Yep, yep. Maybe yep. another
1: was a bull gator. Yep, and then Virgil jumped out and there was right. a big action scene he defeated them and then we yeah then we went into Tate's Hell. Nice. A Floridian Virgil though. Poppy Satan Leppi. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, back, back to bonsais here. Uh, bonsai proper. So, yeah, indeed, some of the models for bonsai trees are actually trees found growing in the natural environment, uh, particularly growing over water or on the sides of mountains, you know, in the the, 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 the rocky crags, mm-hmm. you know, forced by their environment into dwarf forms like we're talking about here. So, uh, again, the bonsai treatment is is trying to do is doing what nature does in constraining the growth of a tree, but then taking it to the next level, you know, involving just absolute artistic manipulation of the form. Bonsai means roughly tree in a pot in Japanese. Uh, specifically, we're talking uh, uh, plants grown in shallow containers and uh, via the exact tenets of bonsai pruning and training. Uh, so it's, it's worth stressing that a bonsai is not genetically a dwarfed plant, uh, nor is it kept small through some sort of regiment of torture or anything like that.
0: No, it's these physical constraints we've been talking about, which, as uh, shown in one possible explanation of the dwarf cypress in in the swamp there, that that can happen in nature, but it happens, like you're saying, on cliff faces and other times when the physical forces around a plant shape its growth. Though I do want to say, while bonsai trees are not uh, not generally genetically dwarfed plants, The subject of actual genetic dwarf plant strains actually has a massive impact uh, on the recent history of the world. This is something that is a a fact that's actually little appreciated by many people considering how consequential it has been in the world and something that goes beyond the art and aesthetics of plant-keeping. Dwarf plants and what are sometimes known as semi-dwarf plants have played a shockingly powerful role in the economics and practicalities of food crops over the last, uh, I guess, like uh, 60, 70 years. So uh, dwarf or semi-dwarf strains of crop plants, like wheat and rice especially, have very much changed the world. And if you want to learn more about this, you can look up the Green Revolution Basically, this refers to a suite of new technologies and techniques in agriculture, especially new dwarf strains of staple crops like wheat and rice that were developed and deployed uh, throughout the 1950s and 60s. And of course, new agricultural techniques and transgenic plants and things like that have lots of modern critics. Uh, But all of those criticisms considered, it is widely acknowledged that the Green Revolution played an unprecedented role in decreasing world hunger and has probably saved at least a billion human lives. Now, you might immediately wonder why. like Why would physically smaller strains of crop plants like wheat and rice actually make a difference? How could they how could smaller plants help save millions or billions of lives? Uh, Well, one paper I was looking at in the journal Plant Physiology had a good short summary of this in its background section. This was by uh, Annie A. Elias et al. It was published in 2012. And so they note that semi-dwarfism in plants uh, results in a few things, one of which is decreased lodging. Lodging is a term in agriculture where tall crop plants like wheat stalks can bend over at the base. You've probably actually seen this before in in wheat fields where they just sort of like fold over into the ground, making the grain difficult to harvest. Uh, And the shorter stalks do this far less. But there's also just an increased yield of grain, uh, an improved harvest index. The harvest index is the percent of the above ground biomass represented by the harvestable part of the plant. In other words, like what percentage of the Part of the plant that's above ground is actually grain and not just, you know, unusable stalk or husk. But in addition to these enormously consequential changes in strains of cereal crops – the authors is point out that semi dwarfism has big benefits in uh, fruit tree production. So, you know, tree, trees that produce fruits like apples or peaches can have semi dwarf varieties that are that are very useful to farmers. In certain cases, they might bear fruit earlier in the season, have higher yields of fruit, um, be e- easier to harvest because the fruits just like closer to the ground, so it's easier to pick. Mm-hmm. um but of course semi dwarf species play a big role in pure aesthetics too quote semi dwarf woody species are also extensively used in ornamental horticulture where they allow more compact forms to be fit into small areas around homes and on streets to reduce the need for pruning to avoid interference with structures and transmission lines i've never considered that before
1: yeah. Um, I, I mean, you do hear about you know, problems with uh, with roots uh, interfering with structures and uh, plumbing and so forth. Oh, so it makes sense. I right? am
0: intimately familiar with that, as is anybody else out there who has ever had to replace a sewer line that was being penetrated oh. by the roots of an ornamental plant. It's real, mm-hmm. folks. The anguish is profound when, <laughs> when your toilets won't flush. <laughs> oh, But anyway, uh, this this paper in particular, uh, that was just stuff that it talks about in its background section. The actual point of this paper is making the case for using semi-dwarf strains of trees in forestry. Uh, The authors write, quote, Although against the current orthodoxy of forest tree breeding, where height growth is emphasized—usually so, you know usually you want trees to be tall— they say mm-hmm. that semi-dwarfism might also have benefits for wood and biomass production. Such trees could be useful if they were less prone to wind throw due to their shorter, stockier forms and expected greater allocation to roots. Reduced stature could also result in less bending and slanting of trunks— in the face of wind and gravity on hill slopes, and thus reduce the extent of reaction wood formation, which degrades the performance and value of solid wood and pulp products. Reduced height and increased allocation of growth to roots might enhance stress tolerance, soil nutrient uptake, bioremediation, and carbon sequestration. Um, So again, this was published in 2012. I'm not sure how their argument about the use of dwarf uh, strains in forestry Uh, holds up since then. But it's a really interesting idea to appreciate how much of a difference in the world has just been made by uh, not just new agricultural techniques and irrigation and things like that, but just the introduction of smaller plants. It's literally changed human civilization. Uh, and uh, elsewhere, just as one note, I, I read about some uh, dwarf crop strains potentially being developed for use in space flight, which I thought was pretty funny. You, you can see some oh, obvious reasons. Yeah, that's reasons interesting. I, yeah.
1: I remember getting into this. I, I don't know if they were – well, you would classify as a dwarf plant, but I remember in our episode about tomatoes, we touched on uh, tomato um, varieties that have been developed uh, potentially for use in uh, a low-gravity environment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so it could be similar things here. I imagine not trees for forestry, but, you know, uh, mm-hmm. food-bearing plants, I would assume. Uh, yeah. But but to bring things back to bonsai, uh, again, as you emphasized earlier, with bonsai, we're generally talking about trees that are tiny by way of nurture, not nature, right? They're, these are not mm-hmm. genetically dwarf strains. There are, there are constraints imposed upon them by their, their human cultivators uh, that keep them in this tiny shape. And one thing that's really interesting about plants is that it's striking how much nurture can look like nature when it comes yes. to the plant kingdom. And this brings me to one last thing I wanted to talk about briefly. It was a really interesting essay I was reading. Uh, published in Eon magazine. Uh, it was called Rooted from October 2019. And it's about the, the concept of, of how trees embody history that time is really shown through a tree. And uh, it was written by Dalia Nasser, who is a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Sydney, and by Margaret M. Barber, who is a professor of plant physiology at the uh, the University of Sydney. And so I just want to read a a quote from their, their article here. While all living beings carry their past with them into their present and future selves, Trees embody their history in a way that is far more explicit, and with greater detail and visibility than any other living being. The history of any particular tree is not hidden in an interior part, nor is it found in only one of its parts. As such, trees call attention to the historicity of life, demanding that we think of life not as static and machine-like, but as dynamic, context-sensitive, and plastic." Trees are not only embodied recorders of their history, but also shapeshifters, whose structure transforms in relation to their environment. Put simply, trees express their context in their physical form. Trees of the same species can look significantly different depending on their growth environment, and even within an individual tree, the leaves at the shady bottom of the canopy are anatomically different meaning larger and thinner, from those at the top, smaller and thicker. When densely planted, trees grow long, straight trunks and small canopies, but when planted in a grass field, they grow shorter stems and broad crowns. The crown of a solitary oak spreads out in all directions, eventually achieving a dome shape, while an oak growing in a forest develops a small crown, and its growth is patterned on the growth of surrounding trees. Or think of a bonsai tree in contrast to its full-size sibling. Trees are so adaptive to their surroundings that a human equivalent to tree plasticity would be certain people growing large webbed feet like diving flippers simply because they swim a lot. (laughs) And they go on to point out uh, other examples of this, that uh, this actually would tie back into the, uh, the dwarf cypress example from Tate's Hell, that the soil quality, for example, can shape a tree. And uh, the, so it, all, all these different features of the natural environment come through in the, the shape and form and physiology of a tree that could start genetically identical, but end up looking so far apart they would be unrecognizable.
1: Wow, I, I really love that. The idea of the, especially the, the way time is wound up in a tree, because that does seem to be a huge part of, of bonsai tree tradition, it, because these are things that that very often outlive uh, the individual who is caring for them. You yes. know, it's, it's a thing that has to be passed on. Uh, it is that they're sometimes described as being like children, you know. Mm. Um, and I, I was thinking about this, especially when I watched a great big story video uh, about uh, bonsai shears, great big story is sadly defunct now. Uh, but they before they went out, they made a whole bunch of videos about various uh, various cultural things and practices, and a number of these relate to Japanese uh, cultural. Um, uh, things and topics. Uh, but there's one titled making $35,000 bonsai scissors that uh, <laughs> I recommend checking out. And it's about this, uh, this guy who, uh, is the, uh, the Sasuke, uh, brand of, of bonsai scissors, which I think are the only traditional bonsai scissors, uh, that are still created in, um, uh, in japan and you can look them up uh look look this uh this guy up online it's uh it's like s-a-s-u-k-e um uh, bonsai shears or look up the video and it's it's really insightful but in this particular video you have this this older uh, japanese man talking about the crafting of the scissors and how long it takes you know like he'll get in you know, someone will put in a request and he'll be like okay i need uh, i need a half a year or so to uh to figure out what kind of, of shears to make for you, you know, and then he's making it for somebody who is a, a bonsai uh, practitioner, somebody who's deeply immersed in the culture. And you get the sense of a human beings sort of living uh, to a certain extent, to, as a, to, as, to whatever extent is possible for a human being to live on the time scale of the trees they care for, you know. Mm, uh, yeah. And it's really, really kind of beautiful and does get into, I guess, the, you know, the, the meditative aspects of bonsai tree uh, care. I like the idea that a lot of these uh, Sasuke shears, they've
0: got kind of like – at least the ones I was looking at online often have like these long roping kind of handles instead of just the normal uh, functional sort of like grippy handles of, of garden shears you'd buy at Lowe's. Yeah. And the long looping handles actually make it look like it's kind of made out of plant growth. You know, It's like the, the there are roots mm-hmm. in your fingers.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're very, they're beautiful to behold. Uh, yeah, with these big looping uh, handles, and, and of course, part of it too, I'm uh, um, to understand, is that you want very precise, very sharp shears because the cleaner cut that you get, the healthier it is for the organism.
0: Oh, yeah, that makes sense. You want to, you want to like uh, shear very cleanly instead of crushing
1: right yeah and so that's one of the reasons you tend to see if not shears like this then at least some other fancy variety of shears you know you're not just getting in there with your old rusty garden uh pruners and uh chopping away you know you want something very precise Mm -hmm. Uh, and then also i think it's one of those situations where the tools are part of the practice you know Mm -hmm. um but uh, as far as the organism goes various tree species can be bonsai trees but there are essentially two broad categories here indoor and outdoor though uh this was in the writing of, of Orr, who did that uh, piece for new york times which i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. I, I i will point out that i have seen other people sort of shy away from the idea of indoor bonsai and it seemed to imply that true bonsai are, are, are all outdoor bonsai so i'm not sure <laughs> uh where to land on that but or at, at any rate says, Okay, first of all, you have outdoor bonsai that do best in temperate regions featuring species such as pine, cedar, ginkgo, Japanese maple, hornbeam, and juniper, and they often require a cool, dormant uh, period, like a you know winter period, and species like the juniper will require overwintering often in a greenhouse or a sunroom. Mm. And then if you're dealing with indoor bonsai, according to Orr, these are typically tropical and subtropical plant, plants such as uh, ficus, uh, uh, uh podocarpus, and dwarf jade. And Orr writes that these require something similar to normal indoor houseplant care, but they also require, you know, of course, all the, the, uh, the various uh, aspects of bonsai uh, uh, pruning, etc. but also they require more watering due to those shallow pots. Well, so we've discussed
0: how the shallow pots can help sh- shape the body of the tree. But obviously, another major feature is what comes in with the pruning itself. So, like, what is the, the, the process of this ongoing care?
1: OK, so uh, some of these will be obvious to folks who engage in any level of, like, tree care and outdoor stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, but other stuff is more specific to bonsai. So, first of all, trimming is the removal of outer branch tips, while pruning is is the specific removal of individual branches, stems, or even parts of the trunk. On top of that, you have things like wiring and clamping, and this is a way to physically guide the growth and shape of the tree via physical constraints. On top of this, grafting is also used. um, As are, uh, you can also do a certain amount of defoliation, you know, the removal Mm -hmm. of, of leaves. And then deadwood bonsai techniques involve the creation, shaping and preservation of dead wood on a living bonsai tree to enhance this sense of age.
0: Oh, yes. So I've seen bonsai trees like this, I think. And there's a very particular aesthetic that that actually exists in the natural world, not just in in, uh, human horticulture that that is mimicking that I find very beautiful. I think a lot of other people do too, and I I wonder why exactly it is. But it's the the aesthetic you see in the natural growth of bristlecone pine trees, where they often have the appearance of a live tree growing on or within this ancient, warped, twirling piece of dead wood. Do you know what I'm talking Mm. about?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I, I know what you're talking about. I can picture it in my head. Yeah, and there is something just intrinsically attractive about it. I don't know. It it doesn't apply to um, animals, like the idea of a, like a human coming up dressed in bones, generally not as attractive. Uh-huh. But uh, but but this is uh, this is uh, bristlecone pines. By the way, are
0: they're particularly uh, known? I think for for achieving uh, tremendous ages. Like they they get really really old. They're some of the oldest living organisms and and they really do look like it because again yeah you can see like um there will be parts of a tree that are producing foliage, so they're still green, they're still growing, you know, they're still producing new growth seasonally, I guess, uh, but down below that, it will just be what looks like a 10 million year old skeleton that's got these like lollipop twirls of color in it, uh, or like a, sorry, like a peppermint uh, twist type of color and the branches are these snaking witch fingers without any leaves uh it, it's very very cool so if you're not familiar with bristlecone pines look them up
1: now um another thing i want to drive home about the bonsai is again the the upkeep and care of a bonsai are are in their their own way like a delicate art form i was reading a piece in the new york times by makiko inoue and daniel victor um apparently uh new york times is just prime reporting uh a source for bonsai, uh, <laughs> but uh, they, they were, this was an article about a story that was making the rounds at the time in 2019. Um, this was bonsai are like our children. Couple pleads for return of stolen trees, uh, and this had to do with. Um, a, a 400-year-old bonsai that had been stolen uh, that was worth an estimated $90,000. Uh, the theft was, again, covered by a number of different news sources at the time. Bonsai can fetch a hefty price on the black market. Sadly, I, I didn't run across any reporting about this tree being recovered. I mean, maybe it did, and that just didn't make a snazzy uh, news story for most uh, sources. Um, but one of the things that they pointed out is that like, if you were to steal a, a, a high value bonsai tree like this, if you didn't know how to care for it, uh, if you didn't know the particular things you needed to do, it could die within a week. You know, so there's yeah. a there's a delicacy to these um, these organisms as well. But I'm also interested in the statement of th- these
0: people saying that uh, the bonsai are like our children because yeah. it. I mean, you can totally see how that would be the case, that it's not just like somebody stole any other high-value item within a home. I don't know, you know, a, an expensive painting or something. It is in some ways like a child. I mean, obviously not – you know, it doesn't have a brain or anything, but it does require
1: care. Well, I like the idea of comparing it to something like a painting because, yeah, a painting certainly requires a certain amount of care and, and even uh, upkeep so, yeah. and occasional, occasionally restoration. But there is – and but there, i guess when it comes to like the bonsai tree and the painting like yeah there's probably a tipping point with the painting if it's degraded and it's not cared for you know a, a point past which it cannot be brought back in a meaningful way but with a bonsai tree like there is definitely that point you know like there's no there's no gray area there's a point where the tree is no longer alive and will not live again and um yeah. And it's ultimately it is a living thing. It is a it is a, a thing that is cared for, that is nurtured. and You see it growing and you know that you have a role in its growth. Well,
0: I wonder how did all this get started? Like who first had the idea to grow tiny
1: versions of adult shaped trees in pots? Yeah, the, the history is pretty fascinating. So in a broader sense, in a really broad sense, we can just say, okay, what, how far back do ornamental gardens go? Sure. And it seems like they date back at least as far as 1500 BCE in ancient Egypt because we see them depicted in tomb paintings from that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also some interesting uh, connections to Babylonian and Ayurvedic traditions. Uh, so, you know, it's probably one of those things that's ultimately lost in history because it basically comes down to, all right, people – People messing around with plants and people creating ceramics uh, and, and I guess not just ceramics, but also like, uh, you know, I guess you can make a, a wooden pot as well, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but people messing around with materials, messing around with plants and getting to the point where they realize, oh, I can... I can put this in a pot. I can take it with me, uh, you know, instead of just depending, say, on dried herbs, maybe I might try and bring this plant with me as I travel somewhere else, bring it alive and uh, and do something you know, with it when I get there.
0: I would not be surprised if that was tied into ancient
1: beliefs about herbal medicine. Mm, yeah, good point. And I, think, I think maybe that's where some of the Ayurvedic traditions also come into play. But the immediate predecessor to the bonsai practice in Japan takes us to China around the year 1000 CE. I've also seen a date of 700 CE, Uh, so there may be some disagreement about, you know, when exactly we're looking at here. But, uh, for instance, uh, I was looking at a source on this by Jack Dothit, uh, often recognized as a Western authority on bonsai practices. Uh, He has a book titled Bonsai, the Art of Living Sculpture, and he dates the beginnings of Banzai uh, to the Han Dynasty over 2,000 years ago. Or not the beginning of Banzai, but the beginning of this predecessor. Um. He, wrote, he writes the following in, in the bonsai Survival Manual. Quote, legend has it that at one point, an ancient Chinese emperor commissioned the construction in his courtyard of vast miniature landscapes, complete with mountains, lakes, and of course, miniature trees. These landscapes were designed to represent all the parts of his empire. So in this way, he could stand on his balcony and survey his entire domain. Whoa. And again, that I like that story because it gets back to what we were talking about, like the... the irresistible allure of the world at large made miniature. I
0: I absolutely see that. And, uh, you know, it comes through in plenty of other ways, too. I think uh, this is actually a primary motivator, I think, for a lot of people who have uh, model train hobbies. Uh, Not everyone, but I, I think a lot of people who are into model trains, it's not even so much about the train. I mean, that's part of it, but it's about It's about a a driving excuse to create these miniature landscapes uh, because the miniature landscapes are so appealing for some reason. I mean, I I love them. I I love dioramas and um, – I love, like, a good museum that has carefully painted dioramas. Oh, yeah. I know you paint miniatures, so you have this appreciation. Sometimes I wonder if, if some of the people who are into, like, the model train thing or, like, uh, or like uh, miniature diorama recreations of historic battle scenes or whatever like that are, are – it's basically the same impulse that drives, uh, you know, people who, who would do D&D or tabletop miniatures, but for people who don't like magic and wizards –
1: yeah, I think it's absolutely the case. Yeah, I mean, you see it in, in wargaming uh, because there's a lot of that that same energy that goes into the creating the environments in trains. You see it in creating environments to have your little battles on. Mm-hmm. You see it in the Lego pastime among yeah. both children and uh, adult uh, fans of Legos, uh, where they'll create whole little worlds, and that's that's part of it. Yeah, and and indeed, diorama creation can just be so incredible. I love a great diorama at a at a museum. Uh, mm-hmm. it's a, a, the um, the Met has some of the best. Ba- I think it's the Met. Is it the Met that has some really good ones? Mm. At any rate, I know I, I've seen some great recall. dioramas in uh, in New York. But anyway, this particular uh, Chinese predecessor to uh, the bonsai this is uh, was the art of punsai. Uh, these were luxury items of the day, and around roughly 1100 CE, Buddhist monks brought the tradition to Japan. Uh, and as, often the case, as is often the case in Japanese culture, they took an outside art form, they refined it, and they made it their own. As Dothit points out, the main drivers here were the Japanese people's love of nature, uh, but also increasingly uh, an increasing artistic awareness. And this coupled with the minimalist teachings of Zen Buddhism. So all of this gets reflected uh, in it. Uh, and uh, so, so, yeah, as part of the Zen Buddhism movement of the time, it takes root in Japanese culture and becomes, you know, not only this this sort of, uh, you know, meditative uh, pastime that is associated, again, with Zen Buddhism, but also it becomes the ultimate pastime of the upper classes. Like it is this the, uh, you know, it, this is a luxury item to have and to care for and to just keep as a symbol of of who you are and where you are in society. Mm. According to Robert J. Barron, writing for com. Quote, Finding beauty in severe austerity, Zen monks with less landforms as a model developed their tray landscapes along certain lines, so that a single tree in a pot could represent the universe. So a connection here again is made between the tree in miniature and not just the world at large, but the universe at at large. You know, not just the world as a physical thing, but also the world as as far as our you know, perceptions of self and reality and the soul are concerned. Um, a connection is also frequently made between yeah you know, the traditions of caring for the plant and meditation. And during the mid nineteenth century, as Japan began to make contact with the outside world again in major ways, the bonsai tradition began to spread as well. And so yeah, now you can find bonsai literally all over the world.
0: Uh, that's interesting to see, uh, especially for certain kinds of meditation. You know, the kind of meditation that are focused on the control of attention, for example, you know, uh, mindfulness types of meditation, mm-hmm. what they have in common, it seems to me is that there is this never ending balance between sort of the, the natural growing chaos of life, which is sort of like your wandering attention as a, as a meditator or the growth of a plant in a pot, uh, versus like all of these sort of like methods of shaping, you know, you, you could kind of think of, uh, meditation in one way as a, as a shaping of the attention that naturally wants to grow in one way or another, but you're just sort of like pruning it down and, and making it harmonious.
1: Yeah, I, I can't help but to compare it, first of all, to, to creating, say, like a model tank, you know, you put a lot of care into creating that tank, but then once it's done, you can basically put it on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might have to dust it off from time to time. Maybe you'll go back and tweak something on it, but it's essentially complete. Uh, and then I think of of, say, having a you know an actual child you know like that that is a, a case where you you're continually help helping this child to grow but but in a way that eventually that child is going to leave you that child is going to go on and have this this larger life uh, and is no longer going to be a part of your household the bonsai tree is uh, is uh is always going to be there you know unless of course you 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 um uh, you, you give it to somebody else, pass it to the care of another or, or, of course, ultimately have to make plans for it to continue living after you have died. But you were you were keeping it in this re- constrained dwarf environment, you mm-hmm. know, like you wouldn't want to have uh, you wouldn't want to have a bonsai child. You know that that would be that would be monstrous. Uh, but the bonsai tree, different matter.
0: I don't know. Some people do sort
1: of prune and wire their children. Yeah. Well, you do want to wire your children. Yeah, you, know, you want to you want to, to 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 manipulate their development as much as possible towards um, you know the positive models of being. Mm-hmm. But then you know eventually you want to you know let them out of the greenhouse. <laughs> I don't know. It's not a perfect metaphor for for, for rearing a child, uh, but. Um, uh, at any rate, I, I, I do see like so much of the bonsai is about about control, but not just control for control's sake, but control for artistic uh, purposes. So, um, yeah, you wouldn't want to take that approach to creating a child uh, or to, to growing a child, et cetera. Uh, but then again, also, yeah, it doesn't apply. The same sort of model doesn't apply to other forms of art where you do reach some level of completion. Mm-hmm. Um, if, I mean, even if you were, say, if you were to compare it to, say, writing um, an epic poem. You know, and perhaps it's an epic poem, you work on your entire life, and then towards the end of your life, uh, you know, you're still tinkering with it. Maybe you never get it quite finished. But then does that pass on to another person to get finished and then on to another? Like, generally, you're only going to see, like, maybe, what, a couple of generations of tinkering with a particular Uh, work of uh, of literature. Well, Um,
0: this is very interesting in how it ties into epic poetry in particular because it depends on which epic poem you're talking about. So if it's the Aeneid, mm -hmm. uh, you could just have Virgil, the author, sits down to write the epic poem. And they, you know, Virgil can decide when he's done tinkering on it mainly. But um, if it is something like the Odyssey or the Iliad, that grows out of an oral tradition in which every telling of the tale was different right. originally. So, like, the written versions that we have of the Iliad and the Odyssey are very, it's, it's extremely unlikely that. That was in any way a fixed form of the poem from antiquity. It's going to be something that grew out of an oral storytelling tradition that pro- that had infinite different variations and was told by different tellers. And at some point, some version of it got written down.
1: Now, that's a great point. Yeah, so in, in a way, you could compare the bonsai rather favorably to the creation of a myth and a legend. You know, because be, you know beyond the mere epic poem, the Iliad is something that is continually retold time and time again. It continues to live in different forms. We're we're perpetually trimming it and caring for it, um, letting it grow out a bit and maybe reining it back in. And we see this with other forms as well. I mean, you could even make an argument for something like Star Wars being the case, you know? (laughs) Like for a while, it was George Lucas's bonsai. And uh, and then in different phases, it has been passed on to other people to care for. And if it it remains popular, this will continue uh, for centuries even. Now, uh, to come back to just a little bit here at the end to, to science, I do want to point to um, a scientific uh, paper that I came across, and it deals with the science of root pruning. So th- this is pretty neat. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to get super into the details of the study, but it does make some great points just about uh, the wondrous um, qualities of a plant's roots. So plant roots are naturally robust and regenerative. Since they're, a vital, they're, they're vital for water and nutrient absorption, they have to be able to bounce back from injury really well. So they have impressive plasticity, which also helps them adapt to changing environmental circumstances, such as drought. And this plasticity is harnessed in root pruning uh, in bonsai as a way to control size and vigor. And interestingly enough, there was a 2017 study from Hokkaido University that looked at the molecular mechanism behind root regeneration to figure out exactly what's going on, because prior to this, there were you know there was definitely some strong theories, but the exact molecular mechanism was largely unknown. Mm-hmm. That study, published in Plant and Cell Physiology, identified for the first time that yucca 9, one of the 11 yucca genes involved in auxin synthesis, plays a primary role in root system regeneration. So auxin is a plant hormone which causes the elongation of cells and shoots and is involved in regulating plant growth. Now, to be clear, this particular study didn't use bonsai trees, uh, but they were part of the title and even the cover art for this edition of plant and cell physiology. It has this beautiful photograph of a bonsai on the cover.
0: Okay, so root uh, regeneration is related to this gene that stimulates the production of this hormone that causes cells to elongate. And the the elongation of plant cells, by the way, is something that's very interesting. uh, And I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much that comes in, even in things as mundane as cooking. You know, when we think about body cells, we think about cells that are, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what's the best way to think of them in a three-dimensional sense, but in the microscope slide sense, you think of them as basically like round or kind of like a little square. Yeah, a little fried egg. Right. Plant cells can be very elongated. And this is one reason that if, say, you're cutting an onion, uh, the Mm -hmm. direction along which you cut the onion can make a big difference in how much of the compounds that induce tears are released when you're cutting the onion. So if you're slicing an onion crosswise. Um, So you're going, you know, you're creating the rings. You tend to shear a lot more cells because the cells are elongated from pole to pole along the onion. So you're cutting more cells open, releasing more of that juice that's going to make you cry more. If you turn the onion around and you cut it in the pole to pole direction, you're cutting parallel to the elongated cells instead of across them. Fewer cells are ruptured, less juice is released, and there's less crying.
1: Uh, I don't really have a problem crying while cutting onions, but I, I definitely need to watch a video on cutting onions because I know I'm doing it very incorrectly. <laughs> uh, I'm very slapdash with my onion cutting, and this has been pointed out before. Oh, I, I, I'll, I'll give you a trainer someday. Okay. <laughs> I do a lot of
0: onion cutting. I wonder how many onions I've cut up in my life. Probably thousands.
1: Yeah. Which, which color of onion do you think you've cut the most of? Oh, I guess regular yellow onions probably. Yeah. I'd do them all. I like the purple onions, the red onions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Recall. Those are
0: those are yeah. really good for pickling. Do you all ever make pickled onions at home?
1: Um, we have maybe have made some, like, fridge pickles or sort of, like, I don't know, bowl pickles for recipes. I don't know what you call that when you sort of – you pickle something for an hour or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. uh, not, like, full uh, lacto-fermentation. Yeah, just simple, right. like, vinegar pickling. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, one of the – most versatile things you can have in your kitchen is just a just a nice container of pickled onions and red onions are great for that. So you just make like a brine solutions like half water half vinegar add some salt uh, sugar if you want it and then pour uh, boil that pour it over some sliced red onions and then put that on everything.
1: All right, well, well, there you have it. I feel like we covered a lot, of, a lot of ground in this episode, and obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody out there about bonsai trees specifically, but also uh, dwarf trees in the strange Floridian wilderness, uh, onion cutting—you uh, uh, know, all of it is on the table. But yeah, specifically, if anybody out there has expertise with bonsai trees or uh, you know has more more experience with them, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so you know, please write in and uh, and tell us all about it. Um, and, and I do want to just, yeah, remind everybody when, when it becomes safe to do so, uh, I, I do recommend going out and seeing some bonsais in real life, you know, if, uh, uh, again, I, I I saw them when I was in, uh, I think I saw some at the San Diego Zoo, and I saw some in San Francisco somewhere, maybe a botanical garden there. But they're all over, and wherever you live, there's bound to be some place that will be offering you a chance to view them uh, in the near future. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcast, And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always to our excellent audio producer, Seth
0: Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.